0: Well, good morning, Colonial Baptist Church. I uh, hope you're doing well today and that you find yourself rejoicing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you don't quite have yourself there yet, if you're not uh, ready to rejoice in him, it's my prayer that throughout the course of this sermon, uh, God will use it to strengthen your resolve and your commitment and your love for Jesus Christ. I know, My heart has been warmed in that way uh, by looking at this text. We've been making our way through Hebrews and going through one of the richest doctrinal sections in the book, the lengthiest one in the book. It goes from Hebrews 8 to Hebrews 10. In it, we've used the acrostics PCS to help us remember the the subjects uh, that the author of Hebrews will compare. He first talks about priests, old and new priests. Then he talks about the old and new covenant, and we're in a section talking about the old sacrifices, and the superior nature of Jesus' sacrifice. The section started in the middle of Hebrews chapter 9. And if you have your Bible, there in in verses 11 through 14, we we first learned this about Jesus' sacrifice. We learned that his sacrifice was empowering. If you remember in that text, we looked at this several weeks ago. Jesus ransomed us eternally, and he cleansed us internally to enable worship to the living God. We noticed then uh, a few weeks ago as well that the sacrifice of Jesus was more than just empowering in that way, but that it also met God's demands. God demanded death, and he demanded bloodshed in verses 15 through 22, and Jesus's death and his shed blood met God's demands. Then, uh, as well, we notice third, that the sacrifice of Jesus was able to put sin away. you remember in verses 23 through 28 that Jesus makes two appearances. His first appearance is in heaven. He went into the throne room of God there to finally put away sin. There's an another appearance coming in the future. That appearance will be to earth when He will come, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I hope the last few weeks you've been eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. Today as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we'll start in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. To me it's just phenomenal that we've actually made it this far. right? Hebrews 10, just a few chapters left in our study. So come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses one through ten, we'll we'll learn one last quality regarding Jesus' sacrifice. And that quality is that it alone can sanctify us. Jesus' sacrifice sanctifies us. Now, have you ever had the privilege of meeting someone important before? Uh, my life, as I considered this question, I had to realize that uh, it, what, I, I haven't really met a lot of celebrities or popular people in life. I, I can claim to have met two important uh, theologians of our day or preachers. Uh, and neither one of those, uh, those meetings went exactly the way that I wanted it to. I remember once uh, I met John Piper in the Minnesota Convention Center there in Minneapolis, and uh, I have to say, I had no warning that Piper would be in the hallway. And so I think my total uh, you know, combined words were probably two or three maximum words to John Piper. I wish I had that opportunity again. I also remember on one occasion being in a motel in some city, and I came down out of the elevator of the motel, and they opened up, and I saw Al Mohler. Al Moller, And again, uh, without any warning, I didn't really prepare myself. I didn't have good words. I didn't really say much. Have you ever met someone important before? Now, if you actually had time to prepare for a meeting with someone important, what would you do? Perhaps you would work on your appearance, right? You get a new haircut, trim down just a little bit, get some new clothes. Or uh, perhaps you'd Uh, rely less on appearance, and and you would would think about some words, right? Some words. What would I want to say? If I've only got a few minutes with this person, what do I want to say to them? And you'd work on those words or thoughts. Today, we will discover what we need to do to prepare to meet God. And we're going to do this by looking at what the old covenant was not able to do for us And then by looking at what the new covenant could. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10. And uh, before we look at this passage though, I'm going to pray and ask God to use it in our lives. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as I come to this text, I pray that you would help me now to be clear. Uh, It is in some ways challenging, Lord, but this is a stunning passage about the splendors of our Savior. So, Lord, please use it in my life. Help our congregation to be diligent, to pay close attention, to study, and to know these things so that we could learn more about what was on Jesus' heart when he lived and he died for us. Lord, help us here to understand more of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In this passage, uh, there are two paragraphs that we'll be looking at, verses one through four and verses five through 10. And as he does in most other places, the author of Hebrews will look first at the old covenant system, and then he'll look at the new. In particular, what he'll he'll show us in verses one through four are some of the shortcomings of the old sacrifices. Look down in your Bible at verse one. It says, for since the law... "...has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, uh, would they have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, uh, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. As I come to this passage, I I find three shortcomings of the old sacrifices. In verses 1 and 2, we learn that these old sacrifices could not bring completion. We've already seen this sort of observation in other places in Hebrews, but just as a reminder, he says here, it could not perfect those who want or who, who were to draw near to God. That is, the old sacrifices were not able to bring completion to the worshiper. I want you to think about this for a moment. What would a worshiper need to be in God's presence, to meet God, what would you need? Well, God is holy. And so for us to enjoy him, we too must be holy. That is what has to happen. That is what must be accomplished. That's the only way someone can go before him and not be destroyed. But this text says that the law could not do that for the worshiper, could not bring completion. Then in verse 2, he explains that it wasn't capable of dealing with something he calls the consciousness of sins. That's the law had no way of dealing with the guilty conscience of men and women who would continue to sin after the sacrifice of God. Bulls and goats and animals. In other words, the old covenant was not able to help people who had convicted consciences and anxious feelings. The old covenant couldn't help those who had a nagging sense of guilt. I'm reminded of what David said in Psalm 51 when he appeals to God to forgive him outside of the Mosaic law and that legislation, David explained his guilt in this, in this way. He says, my sins are ever before me. And so although the Levitical system and the priests were busy all day long doing their work from dawn to dusk, offering daily sacrifices in the annual sacrifice of the day of atonement. There was no permanent restoration or forgiveness. Uh, John MacArthur uh, explains it this way. He says, it is estimated that at Passover, as many as 300,000 lambs would be slain within a week MacArthur continues, he said the slaughter would be so massive that blood would run out of the temple, ground through specifically prepared channels into the brook Kidron, which seemed to be flowing with blood during this event of the Passover. But what we learn in this passage is that the Old Covenant failed. And it was, and this is true, it, it failed to remove the guilt from the conscience of the person, and I think we know this because uh, one of the ways we know this is because in verse one the author reminds us what the old covenant and the law was actually. Uh, it was a shadow. He says it was only a shadow of the good things that were to come. And we've actually used this analogy a bit before uh, in, in other illustrations. We we talked about a shadow being good and a, a shadow of good things bringing hope and some comfort. You remember uh, Piper's illustration about the shadow of your mother in a store. But a shadow is not ultimate or final. A shadow is not as good as the reality. And so in our text, the author says that the law is a shadow uh, of good things to come. I, I think the good things to come here would be the blessings that would be associated with the new covenant ministry of Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews is expressing this to readers during his day, he says, the the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. I I think it's those things, that sure inheritance that is there for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so as we're working through verses one through four, the, the point of these verses is there are these shortcomings to the law. Uh, We we saw shortcoming number one is that uh, the law could not remove the guilt of sin from our conscience. But then secondly, the second shortcoming is in verse 3. The Old Covenant sacrifices not only did not bring completion to the worshipers, it it only served to remind them of sin. Look in your Bible at verse 3. It says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Now you read this verse and you think this would be a pretty simple passage. Maybe there's not a, a lot of points you can make from this. Uh, however, I would suggest that the word reminder is, a, is an important word in the text. The word reminder uh, is a word that's only used here in Hebrews. As I expanded my word study to go to other places to see it used in the Scriptures, I found that it's only used three other times in the rest of the New Testament. This word reminder in in those other three texts is found once in the gospel narratives and it's found twice in 1 Corinthians 11, a very familiar text to many of you. As I looked in these three passages, in each one of those cases, this word is used of a reminder uh, uh, concerning the elements at the Lord's table. As a matter of fact, I want to read one of these passages to you that I'll put on the screen or the projector for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 25. Here Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It could be translated, do this as a reminder of me. Same word from Hebrews. We continue to read in verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as a reminder of me. So men and women, what Paul is saying and what Jesus said earlier in the Gospels is that the elements of the Lord's table were to be a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus and of the grace that we experience because of his new covenant sacrifice. Now the old covenant sacrifice did not remind the worshiper of grace. Instead, the reminder for old covenant sacrifices was uh, of her, his or her sin. Sin is what was remembered. I love how one commentator, Philip Hughes, describes this. He says, the gospel transforms remembrance from a remembrance of guilt, Old Covenant, to a remembrance of grace, The gospel transforms remembrance from a remembrance of guilt to a remembrance of grace. And so this old covenant reminder came, if translated literally in your Bibles in verse 3, it came year after year, or as ESV says, every year. I think this speaks to the sad monotony of the former covenant. The sacrifices kept coming. The blood kept coming. And the more the sacrifices were seen, the more the blood was seen, uh, the more the worshiper remembered his or her sin and guilt. And so the old sacrifices could not bring completion. They only reminded you of sin. And then in verse 4, we add one last shortcoming. These old covenant sacrifices only consisted of animal blood. Look with me down at verse four again. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This verse actually acts as a reason why the sacrifices of the old covenant could only remind the worshiper of his or her sin. It's because the blood was only animal blood. Animals are not moral creatures. Their blood was not an adequate sacrifice for the sins of humanity. No, their blood was only a shadow of the reality of what would be necessary for the sins of this world. The sacrifice of a human being for the sins of humanity would be required. So as we look at the Old Covenant sacrifices, one word Sticks out to me in verses one through four, and that's shortcomings. However, in verses five through 10, in the second paragraph, I would use the one word, successes. When we see the successes of Jesus' sacrifice or what it was able to accomplish. Here as we look at these verses, the author will emphasize the decisive and the superior nature of Jesus' sacrifice. And the way he's going to do it is with a long citation and an explanation of an Old Testament text, Psalm 40. And so now, uh, as we look at what he does with this citation and his comments on it, I, I want to suggest that Hebrews 10 can be a bit challenging or difficult. Been able to help us here, I, I want to do something a bit different. Before we look at this New Testament text, I want to I go back to the Old Testament text, and I want to look at it. I think this will make it more enjoyable and profitable for us. And we're going to spend some time looking uh, at a text in the Old Testament. We're going to spend a little bit more time there even than we will in Hebrews 10. But then we'll get to the place where we'll see, okay, now what did the author of Hebrews do with this passage So I encourage you to go back in your Bibles to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. As you go back there, I I want to emphasize a few very important things to you about the psalm. I've been studying the psalms. I've been studying this psalm in particular for about two weeks now. And there's a lot that I can tell you. But uh, believe me when I say I'm just going to give you what I feel are the basics that you need to know to make sense out of What's going on in Hebrews. And so there are three things I want to tell you about the psalm. First, I want to just remind you or inform you of its background. And to do that, you just look at the title in above verse 1 in Psalm 40. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. Uh, Here, you need to know that this is a psalm written by David. Beyond that, we don't know much about what specific situation David found himself in. But I think we can get a sense from the text itself that David is facing a difficult calamity. That's the background, David in a difficult spot. Then I add to that the fact that you also need to know a little bit of the content of the psalm. So to understand the content of Psalm 40, you need to know that it comes in two parts. Verses 1 through 10 uh, would be the first part, the first half of the psalm. And in these verses, David offers thanksgiving to God for deliverance from a former crisis that he's experiencing. Okay, and this is where we'll dig into the psalm a bit to try to understand it. So the psalm starts in verses 1 through 3 with David recounting an old calamity Uh, and recounting how God set his feet on a rock. Look in your Bible at verse one. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my step secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here David starts by describing his commitment in this crisis. He, want, he, he said, The text says, "He waited patiently for the Lord, which is an expression, I think, that suggests the tension and the concern that David felt in the middle of this calamity, what was going on, and, but yet the expectancy and the perseverance that he demonstrated in waiting on God. But then in the verses, uh, he talks about what God did. He describes what God does in four ways. God inclined to him. Now, that's a little bit more difficult to understand. What does inclining to someone mean? I think this means that God turned to him. The image here is of one bending down to pay attention to someone. David's in a calamity, and God bends down to pay attention. And then he listens to David's cry. But then, third, he lifted him up and he put a new song in his mouth forth. As we're looking closely at verse two, we we learn a little bit of the predicament that David finds himself in. I I love how he describes it here, I think it's very vivid. He combines two metaphors when he says that he was in a pit of destruction. Then, in this pit, he was also in a, a miry bog. I think this is, of course, metaphorical, to say that it, it's like he was in a slimy pit and his feet were in miry clay. Here the imagery is probably uh, of an open cistern that would be broken down. If someone were to fall into this, water would be seeping in through the cracks on the walls. The walls would be slimy and muddy, and the, the bottom Of the pit was a lair of mud. So David says, I felt like I was wet and up to my ankles in mud, but then God lifted him up and put his feet on a rock. I think a, a reference to who God is. And God put a new song in David's mouth, a fresh song about how God delivers people, how God delivers his followers from things like this. And he said, and many will hear this song and they will fear God and they will put their trust in him. This new song then is what David talks about in other portions of this psalm, like verses four and five, when he says, "When I want to talk about this, when I sing about this, I won't sing about other people, proud people, other lofty people. I'll I'll sing about God who does wonders." And then also in verses nine and ten, he talks about him singing to the great congregation these themes about God delivering him from this former crisis. But I want you to notice in your Bibles, verses six through eight, and this will be the last passage we really uh, zero in on here for a while, where we notice with me David's determination after release from that crisis. Look with me at verse six. It says, "'In sacrifice and offering, "'you have not delighted, "'but you have given me an open ear. "'Burnt offering and sin offering "'you have not required. "'Then I said, "'Behold, I have come,' In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now it will be in these verses in particular that the author of Hebrews will quote. So I must explain a few things to you about this psalm and its original situation. First, Verse 7 describes that David is going somewhere. He says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. The location as to where David is going is not immediately obvious. I I think there are a few different views of this. But I'll just give you what I think is right. The context here is one of sacrifices, so, up in verse 6, David talks about the four types of offerings or sacrifices that, mentioned, that, that Moses mentioned in the law in Leviticus 1 through 4, when talking about sacrifices that were to be engaged in at the tabernacle. So, I think that the context is one of worship, and the location that David probably has on his mind in this original context is him going into the temple. You see, God had restored him and helped him, and so then he goes into the temple to offer worship to God. That's the location. Once there, David realizes something. David has uh, realizes that God did not delight in sacrifices. No, David had something else, though, that he was going to offer to God after his deliverance from the calamity. I think this can be seen in three intriguing parts in verses 6, 7, and 8. So you look at the end of verse 6, or actually even start at the beginning of verse 6. It says, in sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given to me an open ear. Here, this little phrase, you have given to me an open ear, could be translated uh, very literally. You have uh, ears, you have pierced for me. Or you could translate it, you have dug out ears for me. Now this might mean simply that God gave David open ears to hear what he had said. However, I think that David is doing something else here that's just phenomenal. David is recalling one aspect of God's act in fashioning him or shaping him. He's recalling the fact that God created his body in poetic language. I think this is similar to the poetic language of Psalm 139, where David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Speaking of God doing this elaborate thing of putting him together as a small baby while still in the womb. Here David says it this way though. He says, God, you hollowed out my ears You made holes in the side of my head where ears could be placed, and then you provided for me all the mechanisms for hearing. God, you shaped me, and you created me. But then in verse 7, we learn a bit more. We learn uh, when David speaks here about coming into the temple in a way that conforms with what is written about him in the scroll of a book. Now, for sake of time, uh, we can't get into all of the perspectives here. I I just think this is David who is saying that the law, the Pentateuch, the scroll of the book, describes how the king should come in the temple to provide worship for God. God. And so David's grasp of what the law of Moses said, his words, is that God is not really interested in a king or a worshiper coming before him with sacrifices as much as he is interested in his heart. And so look at verse 8 where he makes this very clear. David says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here David says, the king must come to the temple with the law written on his heart. This passage sounds much like a new covenant statement. Perhaps David grasped that God really wanted full heart obedience from those who would follow him. Now notice as well in verse 8 that he says, I delight to do your will. I think that verb there is important, delight. This is not the first time that, Paul, that God has used it or David has used it in this text up in verse 6, you can see it mentioned earlier. He says, in sacrifices and offerings, you have not delighted. Instead, although God did not delight in sacrifices, and I don't think David did either, instead David delights in what God delights in. One commentator made this point very well. His name is John Goldingay, and he said this. He said, David came with a wanting that corresponded to Yahweh's wanting. David came with a desire or a delight that responded or corresponded to Yahweh's delighting. And so he came to do the will of God. So in this part of the passage, I think we can see David's determination and his commitment to honor God after he has been delivered from a crisis. Now before we go back to Hebrews 10, I'll just point out one other thing to you about this passage. The second half of this passage uh, is uh, a, a part of this psalm where David finds himself in another crisis. So if the other one was former, this is a present crisis. And here instead of offering thanksgiving to God in the midst of the crisis, he's offering or describing his distress and his request Now we won't take the time to read all of these verses uh, for uh, John Fulberg had read that in our worship resources uh, for you. But here in these verses we learn that David is troubled. He feels guilty because of the overwhelming nature of his own sin. It's like a flood that's sweeping over him and his enemies are taking advantage of it. They're attacking him and they're mocking him and Israel. So David cries out to God in verse 17. Look at the very last verse of this text. He says, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. So this is the content of Psalm 42 parts, a former crisis out of which God delivered David, and then a present crisis, where he cries out to God to help him. That leads us to, I think, the the, the third point I want to give you about this psalm, that is its main emphasis. The main emphasis of this psalm is on how believers must face calamities in their life of faith. Men and women, I've come to love this psalm as it describes to me the life of faith or the life of the faithful. Do you want to know what the life of faith looks like? Well one day you're in a pit up to, your, uh, up to or in a pit with, with mud up to your ankles. The next day, though, God picks you out. And he puts your feet on a rock and you have short footing. Later, however, again, you're up to your neck in overwhelming sorrow and difficulty. This is a life of faith. And through David's example in the psalm, we we learn that trouble recurs in the life of the faithful and that God gives us these things so that we might find our help in him. And so men and women, as troubles and calamities recur in your life, you must learn that you can trust God and that God desires in these calamities your full, wholehearted obedience to his will. God wants your wanting. He desires your desires. He wants your personal desires to desire what he wants. And so with this understanding of the psalm, and I want us now to go back to Hebrews quickly, briefly, to see what the author of Hebrews does with this and to see him use it to emphasize the successes or the accomplishments of Jesus' sacrifice. He emphasizes here two successes of the new covenant. And he does so by citing the passage, Psalm 40, in verses five through seven, and then giving a reflection on the citation in verses eight through 10. Now, these will go a little bit more quickly. As we look at the citation itself in verses five through seven, uh, we learn how the author introduces it to us. We can learn uh, about one of Jesus's accomplishments. So look with me at verse five. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quote, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O oh God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. So in this section, we'll learn the success of Jesus in that he, through his sacrifice, he accomplished God's will. In its original context, this psalm was about David appearing in the temple to offer worship to God. Here the author of Hebrews, however, uh, I think he looks to David as a type that would point to someone greater. And in a remarkable move, the author of Hebrews puts David's words into Jesus' mouth. I want you to notice a few things about this. Uh, First, at the beginning of verse five in this introductory statement, I want you to notice when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus said this. The beginning of verse five, he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, so, so uh, as we come to this passage and we understand the Old Covenant text that was about David going into the temple, the author of Hebrews here has Jesus speaking. The, the, the question is, who is really speaking here? Well, I want to suggest that the author of Hebrews says in this passage that, that Jesus is the one speaking, so he's the one talking and saying these words. So when you, when you come through these verses, you see the word I, that's in reference to Jesus. Now, there was an old commentator, I think, that, that really stated what is going on well here. Uh, his name was A.T. Hansen. And I would agree fully with what Hansen is saying here. It was his view that Jesus addressed these words as the pre-existent son to the father at the moment of Jesus's incarnation. So with that picture in mind, do you, you really understand what's going on here? Could it be that we have here the passage that was on Jesus' mind when he was brought into this world? I think that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. So when Jesus comes into this world, he says these words to the Father, ready? Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for. You notice what Jesus says here? It's a little bit different than what David said in the psalm, but I think it agrees with the Septuagint of that passage. The Septuagint translators of the Greek Old Testament, they take David's phrase, open ears you've given to me, and they translate it this way, a body you have given to me. Now, if you remember the the Hebrew metaphor concerning God digging out David's ears, David used that phrase to speak of the fact that God created or shaped him. Remember, it's it's like he's knit together in his mother's womb. You, You dug out ears for me. So Jesus says this at his incarnation, God, you don't desire sacrifices, but you have given me a body. If we keep reading in the text, we learn more about Jesus' commitments as we look at verse 7. Notice what Jesus says then at his incarnation when he comes into the world to the Father. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me of the, in the scroll of the book. In the psalm, when David went into the temple, he said, I have come to do your will, O God. Here, Jesus, we we find him with the same exact commitment, perhaps demonstrated in even more significant ways. When Jesus comes into this world, he says to the Father, I have come to do your will, O God. That was Jesus' fundamental commitment when he became flesh. It was to perfectly obey God's will. And Jesus knew something about all of this. He knew that all these things were written out in advance in the scroll of a book, in a scroll or a book that testified of these things. So I was looking at this this week. I, I couldn't help but think, although the text doesn't really clearly tell us what book this is, I think Jesus is telling us here that his mission to obey God and to fulfill his will was forecasted in the Old Testament scriptures. Remember back in the Psalms, David says that the law told him how to go into the temple as the king of Israel. It was written out in advance how a king should come to worship. Here Jesus says the scriptures provide much testimony about his mission in this world. And so when Jesus came into the world, He committed to obey God's will. And men and women, that is exactly what he accomplished in his humanity. So as I think of the new covenant sacrifices in this citation here, I think the main point is through it, Jesus succeeded. He accomplished God's will. But there's one other accomplishment that the author points out in his reflection or his comments on that citation. Here in verses 8 through 10, the author will paraphr- paraphrase that quote again and then offer his own perspectives on it. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here the author starts by saying that Jesus knew that God did not want him to come to offer the old animal sacrifices of the law of Moses, but that God wanted him to come to obey his will. And in doing this, Jesus does away with the first, that's the old covenant, to establish the second. I think that is in reference to God's will. So Jesus comes and he gives his body. And he's a sacrifice for sins to bring accomplishment to God's will. But in verse 10, there's a, a very important summary statement about that will, the will of God. That is, this text unfolds for us some of the fuller or deeper purposes of God in the incarnation and the crucifixion of the Son. What has taken place in Jesus is the accomplishment of the divine will. And through that will, the text says, we have been sanctified through the bodily sacrifice of Jesus. The old sacrifices could not bring us to completion or maturity. But God gave Jesus a body which he offered up so that we would be made holy. Do you see, men and women, This is exactly what we needed. The old covenant fell short, but not Jesus. He succeeded. He accomplished for us something. And now we are made holy by his blood. That's our position in Jesus Christ. We are clean and holy. We are accepted in him. As I thought about how this text applies to us in our life today, I would ask you this question. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, will you, in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he shed blood for your sin, approach this life like he did? Will you say something like this concerning your own physical existence? Behold, I have come to do your will O God, not my own, not my own desires, not my own pleasures, but yours. Will you say, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have given to me? O God, I, I will not defile my body with selfish indulgences. I was bought with a price So I will glorify God with my body. I will not be a glutton who selfishly hoards food to him or herself during this crisis. I won't do that. I will not give in to immoral impulses with my body, not with another person, not online. No, I will live this life of faith By wanting what you want, God. By desiring what you desire. And no matter what calamities or troubles I face in this life, I will determine to come with the same foundational commitment that drove Christ at the moment of his incarnation. You have given me a body to serve you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, one day we will all stand before you and only those sanctified by the blood of Jesus will be accepted. Lord, I would pray specifically now for anyone who's heard this sermon or any of our friends and neighbors and relatives who have yet to believe in Jesus. May they see that the only thing that will prepare them to meet the most important person in the universe, God, is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that makes us holy. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. And we would pray that you would give us more of his attitude. Dear Father, help us to live like him Help us to share the same foundational commitments that he had. Lord, this is a stunning passage which reveals to us the motivations of our Savior Jesus at his incarnation. I pray, Lord, that as we think about the own flesh and blood you've given to us, that we as well would be driven with this sort of perspective Your will, not my own, your desires not my own, my body in service for you. In Jesus' name, amen.